Welcome to season two of the Eater Upsell. I'm Greg Morbido. No, I'm I'm not. I'm Helen Rosner. I'm Helen Rosner, and my co-host is, is Greg Morbido. Is Helen Ross? No, yeah. <laughs> I'm Greg Morbido, and I'm Helen Rosner. Man, we're rusty at this. But what we also are are your co-hosts for the Eater Upsell, the podcast from Eater.com, where Greg and I talk to cool people who are connected to the food world in some way about all sorts of cool things. Usually at the top of the show, Helen and I will discuss something food-related or maybe not food-related, but today we're actually going to jump right into the interview because we have a super awesome guest today. It's Andrew Zimmern. Andrew Zimmern. You probably know him from food TV. He's written a bunch of books. He's traveled the world. He's one of the most famous people in the food world and with good reason because he's really, really smart and he's really interesting and he's right here. I'll say that if you are someone who's very interested in the history of food in America, stick through this interview because Mr. Zimmern dropped some knowledge bombs. And if history is really boring to you, stick around anyway because we talk about dicks. If you're a fan of what you're listening to, take a second and subscribe to the Eater Upsell on iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you choose. And you can also leave a star rating and a positive comment about how charming Greg and I are. And we've got a new thing for this season, too, which is an email address. Drop us a line at upsell at eater.com with questions, comments, personal inquiries, anything that you want me and Greg to know about you or that you want to know about us. And you could hear your questions addressed on an upcoming episode, or maybe we'll just write back to you and send you a Beyonce gif. And now in the Eater Upsell Studios, Andrew Zimmern. You know, a, a dessert that I make a lot for, for food events that was inspired by something that I had in Vietnam, which left over from the French colonial occupation there, is a, a uh, basically a coffee-infused flan. And then they put whipped cream and shaved Vietnamese iced coffee ice Ooh. over the top of it. And it is, I mean, I get a food woody just thinking about it. I mean, it is good. And it's street food there. You can get it for like 10 cents. I want to take a moment to like marinate in the beauty of that mental picture. My food woody or the dessert itself? The dessert itself. Okay. But let's talk about your food woody. Sure. Um, Because that is a phrase that you have emblazoned on t-shirts that people can buy. (laughs) Well, that that is true. And also been forbidden by, you know, different, uh, administrations at the television network for which I perform one of my many jobs. Um, some of them love it because the fans go nuts. And it's legitimately, I mean, there's like a, a couple of things that come out of my mouth that have stuck. <laughs> they get used by myself and by other people and have become, I mean, God, I hate the idea of like, ooh, everyone has, has to have a catchphrase. I mean, it was completely by accident. But when we were shooting the pilot for the show, I actually looked at someone and I said, if it looks good, eat it. And I and I was like, wow, that's really good. And they stuck it at the end of the show and it's how we end every show. And, you know, people screaming at me from buses in foreign countries because- better to scream that at you than Food wow. Woody. Correct. Food but Woody I is- would like, I would prefer they scream Food Woody at me because Food Woody to me is just one of those things. I mean, I'm preaching to the converted here because, you know, the two of you love the world of food as much as I do. And- the people listening to this, I think, are already across. They've, they've made it from bridge to shore on the food issue. It's a part of their lives. Otherwise, they're not listening to the podcast. Um, so it's it's kind of like, you know, I, I'm bringing coals to Newcastle, but we all know the difference between a toe curler and a food woody. I mean, a toe curler is great, but every once in a while when it's like, oh, my God, you just mm. – I mean, not to get too anatomical, but yeah. as a as a woman, yeah. 
I you can have a woody. I, I, no, I, I mean I think like I I can I understand exactly what we're talking about with the toe curler and yeah. the food woody for me as a as a cis woman is a little bit more of a like metaphorical leap. But Correct. I think I get it. Correct. And as a man, it would be bad for me to coin a phrase that would be the. Yeah, no, I think you know, I think it's the that's bro a, version of the sister. We don't want to go for like the sploosh. No, or anything like that. <laughs> a lot of there's a lot of talking eater. Although with some Japanese uh, and, and Asian food texturally, I mean there's just a whole oh, yeah. range of things, but it's kids the, stop listening now. Everything is skewed away from the Ur version of, of womanhood, despite the fact that we've named all our holidays after it, Mother Earth, we've, we've, we keep running away. It's like women are scary to men and men have been in charge of the world for too long. So we, 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 someone was asking me, you know, why do you only eat male anatomical parts? It's like, because so many of them are served around the world and very few people serve female anatomical parts. Although when I've had them from different animals, they are amazingly delicious. I wonder if that's just a pure logistical thing. Like if you have cows, mm -hmm. for example, a herd of cows, yes. you only need one male cow Correct. to make sure that all your female cows Correct. keep going through. So you kill all the leftover male cows and yep. eat their balls. Yep. But there's no point in slaughtering a female cow. Because they can keep making other cows. Right. There's lots of other animals other than that, though, out in the world, especially in the tribal world or in certain countries where there are tribal markets and bushmeat is conveniently sold. And regardless of sex, a, a hunter has just, you know, you know, you take out a um, a goody, a giant, uh, it's, it's, it's a giant rat uh, that lives in the uh, South America. Delicious. One of my favorite animals to eat because all it does is it runs around the forest drinking the cleanest water and eating uh, fruit that falls from trees. So it's like Hamoni Barico. Oh my God. It's unbelievable. And, and this is, I mean, I, I now can just say thank you and leave because you have encapsulated my career in one sentence, which is that what is one person's weird is another person's wonderful and why we fetishize um, these hams that are finished or some cases fed their entire lives on a certain type of acorn in a certain place in the world, um, although more and more just simply finished on them or raised in another country and bust in. It's a dirty little secret. Once you once you go to pig farms in Portugal and you start to learn about how Spain keeps up with its pork production, it's pretty scary. But um, <laughs> I find it hysterical that, you know, smoked jungle meat. I've had a goody, interestingly enough, that has been smoked and then eaten it. And, you know, it's, it's, so whether it's aged for a couple of years, salted and aged in the wind, or whether it's put over, you know, planked wood in a jungle by a tribal people and smoked for a couple of days and then, you know, just left to air dry, or in the Faroe Islands, just take lamb and let it dry in the fog that comes in from the sea that kind of preserves a little bit because of the salt in the fog, but kind of doesn't. So it gets a little funky rot to it. Um, these meats are as good, if not better, than even the Balada Triple X Hamoni Barico. So yeah, the, the world of food is fantastic. It's why I love exploring it. And you find those things and it, it is like drugs. I mean, you're chasing the dragon, the, the high of being in that barn in the Faroe Islands eating this dried lamb uh, raised on the grasses of these hills. I mean, it's just the, the lamb there is the most delicious lamb. Every, everything that grows in the Faroe Islands and not much does is absolutely insanely delicious. 
But what's incredible is when you find something that matches up with the world's best blank, and yet no one has access to it. Ooh. And that is that, you know, I, that's what gives me a food, Woody, when you find something like that. Do you guys eat a lot of Japanese food? Yeah. Yeah. So there's uh, Aji, horse mackerel, small one. Usually they, they fillet the two sides. They'll slice one fillet sort of sashimi style and they'll make a little tartare out of the other one with some, you know, grated daikon and scallion and maybe a little bit of yuzu kosho or something. And they 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 basically build this little dish on the frame of the horse man. You'll pay 40 bucks for it in a good uh, Japanese restaurant in London or Tokyo or New York or LA, sometimes more depending on what the quality is. But yet these are, these are bait fish down <laughs> in... Uh, Namibia on the skeleton coast. And if only they had electricity and roads and a, a way to distribute it, the price would come down and more people would be able to eat this incredible fish. And it's, you know, sort of my favorite example of where food woody meets global politics, meets oppressed people, meets social justice cause, meets what the fuck are we doing in our food world? I mean, they, they are all so phenomenally interconnected. Mm -hmm. There was a story I was reading in the New York Times this morning about how a Japanese ice cream bar has um, raised its price by 10 yen, which is equivalent mm -hmm. to about seven cents. Mm -hmm. And um, um, they the, the company that makes this ice cream like made a commercial to apologize to the entirety of Japan for raising the price of this of this ice cream seven cents. The uh, Japanese because, love to apologize though. Let's not get you know. <laughs> no, and, and but like apparently prices don't really go up in Japan. Like it's very <laughs> rare. And um, the, this article was explaining that the reason that this ice cream bar had to raise its price for the first time in 25 years was because they had previously gotten all of the lumber that they processed into the wooden sticks for their popsicles from China, but the Chinese logging industry was going through some sort of chaos, so they had to use more expensive lumber from Russia. And now that they're using more expensive Russian wood, they have to raise the price of this product that sells for like the equivalent of 75 mm -hmm. cents in the US by 10% and do a massive public apology to the entire country. And, and it's like this idea that like a popsicle stick, which holds the ice cream, can be buffeted mm -hmm. by international logging industry. I mean, mm -hmm. everything is Isn't everything, the world great? right? It's crazy. And ironically, Russian wood was Vladimir Putin's nickname in high school. <laughs> <laughs> right back to the food, Woody. It all circles <laughs> yeah. back. Sorry, I can't. I, I couldn't help it. It was right there. It was a softball. You want to tell us one or two of the coolest things you've got going on right now? Oh, my God. Uh, I make a bunch of TV shows. I, I have a production company that's starting to take off, which is really, really cool. Um... We have a hospitality company that I've been doing in ad hoc format for a long time, but is gaining a lot of traction and uh, amongst other brands owns a uh, a stadium concessions business called AZ Canteen, which is now in 12 cities, I think. And that's very exciting and going on. Um, and I'm, I'm most excited because I take off July and August. I mean, I still have to do like voiceovers and I still like show up at my office a couple days a week, but July and August, I, I try to take off and spend with my family so I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And so I'm sort of obsessed at right now. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's, 
I mean, I'm, I'm lucky. My show's in 73 countries. So, you know, I, I, I do fun projects with hotel brands and I write cool articles for magazines sometimes and I make cool branded content for companies. And You're the embodiment of the modern multifaceted celebrity. And your head yeah, is on a hoodie yeah. that we all love in the other offices. <laughs> my head is on a hoodie. That was a great idea. Do you, you, you talk about the logging industry <laughs> issues. W- one of my ideas was I wanted to put the 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 faces and heads of famous food personages on. So this hoodie is brilliant if um, if you're listening and you have not been an avid follower of the Eater Snapchat, which you should follow. Oh, yes. um, a frequent guest on the Eater Snapchat is the Andrew Zimmern hoodie, which is this <laughs> lovely sort of purplish gray article of clothing that has the profile of Andrew's face on either side of the hood. Right. So if you pull it up over your face and your coworker is sitting immediately to your left or your right, out of the corner of their eye, they will think that Andrew Zimmern is working next to you. Correct. It comes in nice orange as well. Um, uh, available at andrewzimmer.com. Um, <laughs> Along with those food, food witty t-shirts. Correct. My but husband wears around and people give it's me It's a great shirt because I did so it with good. camp style, yeah. established 1961, the year I was wood. born. Yeah, it is written in wood. Um, that's a nice font. Um, yeah, you know, it's it, you get to do fun things and make fun stuff like that when you get to a certain point because you get to just indulge your ideas and all my partners are like, stop with new ideas. Let's just focus and operationalize the the, the stuff that we're struggling with. Um, I wanted to do the food, uh, the, uh, the t-shirt, the hoodies with other people's faces on them and, you know, just try to get down that road with royalty. Like, like let's put, you know, Beard's face and Julia's face on them and stuff like that. And it's like, we just had to stop because it was a legal nightmare, but- but it's I, a great I, idea. I it is a great idea, right? Let's just do it illegally. Yeah, you know, you get sued and then people like me, <laughs> I actually have stuff to lose. Right. When I was, you know, the risk aversion, I, I'm always telling people about taking risks and, and my whole life has been built around taking risks and, and knowing when to – when to leap and when to not leap. And, you know, you know, I'm 54, not 34. So I have enough life experience to look back and say, okay, here's where it worked. Here's where it didn't. But the more stuff, the more skin you have in the game, the, the, the more risk averse you become. When I didn't have a child, it was easy for me to jump off a mountain in, you know, South Africa on television with attached to a string. Cause I, I, you know, if I got hurt, I got hurt, but now I, I won't do that because, I would be unable to be of value to my family in my body cast for six months. And so mm-hmm. I just won't do it. So you make decisions based on self with or not based on self earlier in your career. And then you do it based on self and what you find valuable later in your career. So I try to remember that as a way to remind myself to keep taking more risks and just be smarter about it. That's something that um – comes up not infrequently on this show. I think when we talk to, you know, a lot of the people that we have on the upsell are chefs and restaurateurs who are sort of at the mid to late points in their careers, mm-hmm. right? They've, they've moved out of the like wild bad boy or bad mm-hmm. girl phase and they're starting to settle into being restaurateurs mm-hmm. or managers. Mm-hmm. And that tension is something that I think comes up a lot. It's the, it's the artist's lament. Right. It is the problem with creatives everywhere. Um, and chefs, I, I, I believe it's a craft. I believe that at a certain point, running a business is is an art. And you you get conflicted. You know, we, we all remember the best things about our lives 
and where we learned the most. And it was easy to do when you're a, a young line cook in New York. And then when you're the boss, you're like, oh, no, 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 you know, don't break the glasses. Those are $24 a piece. Um, and, you know, that's the very simple day-to-day -day practicality of it. But I think from a long-term strategy mentality of how to grow a business and a brand, it's, it's why I'm so in awe, and, and they've done it two very different ways, of a company like the one Nobu Matsuhisa has built or the one that like Nick Kokonis and Grant Ackett's have built. Yeah. Um, you know, one predicated on perfect and exact replication of something that works to the point of, I mean, I challenge people all the time to come up with a restaurant company. I think they're up to 24 Nobus around the world and a hotel, Yeah, mm -hmm. maybe two hotels now, one hotel. One hotel. Mm -hmm. Sure. A number of hotels. How do you – and I I happen to be a big fan of the food in those restaurants. It's very reliable. And when I'm traveling, if you've just crawled out of a jungle and eaten nothing but green plantains and and fried wild bush meat um, for eight or nine days and you're flying through London on an overnight, you rush to get like Chinese food or Japanese food. I mean it's just like what your body craves is what you haven't had for a long time. And so I've had the opportunity – you know, over the course of a two-week period once, I ate at Nobu in uh, Hawaii because a friend of mine wanted to go there for their birthday. Nobu in London, Nobu in New York, and Nobu in L.A. It, over, in a two-week period, completely not of my own planning, but it just worked out that way. And I, I ordered the same – some different things, but some same things everywhere there, and they're exactly the same. I think that's Everywhere. the brilliance it's of Nobu. Brilliant! It's the world's Replicator. fanciest chain restaurant. Correct. Well, I uh, interviewed Nobu once, and he said basically sounds like his life is just going in between the Nobus all around the world and just kind of doing quality control. Yep. Yep. It's just a, a it's nice gig if you can get it. I guess. But how do you? How I mean, look look at chefs who cannot. I mean, in the spring, there's a tiny little squid called the firefly squid that's about you know the length of half your pinky. And I've eaten that dish in three or four of his restaurants at the same time of year and amazed that they're it's identical. And there's some restaurants, good ones, where if you order – where they just own one restaurant where the same dish is a little bit different each time. And I'm not saying that's bad, but the, to be able to replicate – you know, perfection or mm -hmm. near perfection. We can argue about that till the cows come home. So many different places around the world is an amazing thing. And it speaks to their training, their quality control, their labor policies, their practice, their H&R, Nobu's leadership and vision that people want to buy into that. I mean, because a lot of people, oh, fuck that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to put a little less garlic in yeah. that, you know, but doing it Nobu's way is the right way. And then you have a restaurant that essentially is predicated on anarchy, in uh, what Nick and Grant have mm -hmm. built. With Alinea or and with Next. next, both next of them. I mean, and they've got Royster and yeah. the Aviary. So, I mean, that in, and the business decisions, I mean, yes, uh, Alinea was 10 years old. Everything wears at carpets, wear out, and stuff like that. But close the restaurant for five months and spend as much money as it takes to build a new restaurant and sort of retrofit the whole place is something that a lot of people would say, oh, no, 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 no. We, you know, we'll do that at the end of our lease when it's 20. Why would we spend that X number of millions of dollars? You know, let's, let's bank that. And they're like, no, let's change it up. You know, and everyone would tell you, oh, my God, wrong idea. But I think it's the most brilliant idea that they could possibly – because they, they stand for the surprise. They stand for the anarcho anarchal notion 
and they prove it all the time. And to do that in a mature phase in their careers is an amazing, amazing thing. I think it's interesting that you refer to what they do in that group as being about anarchy. Oh, absolutely. It is. I, I, I love what they do. And those Mm -hmm. are among my favorite restaurants. Whenever I go to Chicago, I try to scrape up enough money to go to one of them. But like the, I think that the thing to me that defines what the Alinea group does is such extraordinary precision. Mm -hmm. And not that I think precision is necessarily the enemy of anarchy, but there is so much deliberation and so much consideration and so much sort of thoughtful calculation behind all of these decisions. Mm -hmm. It's not like, oh, like, fuck it. We're just going to, you know, demo the restaurant and rebuild it however we feel. Like, I'm sure that the background to the renovation of Alinea was years in the making. Yeah, well, the the anarchy comes before the precision. And this is where I think they are truly expert and truly uh, an inspirational company, regardless of what you do. They have the, the, the the anarchists, you know, drive. They sit there and they say, what would we do if we could start all over again? With a dish, with an idea for a dish, with a menu, with the idea of what a, a restaurant, mm-hmm. and they did it with Next, or how to take reservations, and they did it with Talk. So, what would you do if you remade the whole system? If you blew up everything the way we did and started over? So, there's the anarchists, you know, inspiration, and then once you decide to do that, they approach it like a NASA moonshot. Yeah. Every single element is considered, and I think that is is their brilliance. I think they coexist very beautifully. Yeah. No, I think that's totally I'm more right. impressed. I'm I'm very impressed with their devotion to precision and their NASA moonshot stuff, but there's I can name 20, 30 places that kind of approached the 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 food the same way or or try to. I'm talking about in, with the idea of precision and everything considered and sure. every element and all the rest of that. But very few – I'm not sure I can name another one that's willing to blow things up all the time on a regular basis and start over. It's like um, one, of my, one of my uncles likes to often say that anyone can be a Che Guevara, like anyone can do the revolution, mm-hmm. but not everybody's the Castro who Correct. can build the government in the wake of it. Correct. You know, and I think – It's a great – analogy. Yeah. So like, yeah, like we all know how to fuck shit up and have crazy ideas, but what's magical and rare Mm -hmm. and extraordinary to behold Mm -hmm. is people who know how to have crazy ideas and then sit down and make them happen in extraordinarily meticulous ways. Look on the food side of things. And, uh, you know, my friend Josh Tetrick with Hampton Creek, just, you know, what would we do if we could start over and reinvent the egg? Yeah. And so he did that. And seven years later has the fastest growing food company in the world and he represents big food right now. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, if, if he hasn't crossed the billion dollar mark, he's about to, they've got this massive contract with compass. They're now diversifying into 48 different food items. And so he not only has, he's done, he's been Che Guevara and he's Castro and he's also redefined. I mean, remember, you know, three, four years ago, the worst thing that you could say about any food company is, oh, they're big food. Right. And now I can think of several companies that are big food that are are not bad. And, you know, quite frankly, we need big food and big business to solve some of our big problems in the food space uh, globally and to help us plan for what's going to happen on our planet and our plate over the next 30 years. So it's it's an interesting 
it's an interesting thing to look at this notion of uh, anarchy and then how do you fit it into the body politic and actually use some some real decision making to to run the country. I'm going to use the the Guevara Castro. That's it's all thing. yours. It's good. Thank you. I officially give it to you. Thank you. Oh. I will give you food, Woody. <laughs> I don't know if I want that, but I, I respect right, feel your free. offer. Feel free to do it. You could pass it on to someone else. It's like a get out of jail free card exactly. in Monopoly. You yeah. could trade it to someone else. I'm just saying it's That's, yours. It's currency. It's mine. All Absolutely. right. I'm going to hang on to that. We're friends. <laughs> For a second, because, uh, okay, so I cover New York restaurant stuff. So mm-hmm. I, I just got to ask Very well, you a little bit. Oh, thank you. I, I mean, New York's fascinating city. I think it has an interesting, uh, always interesting, like to hear the history of it. So Me too. you spent some time cooking in the city Yes. during a period that I have a very fascinated by. It was the nineties. And I actually was doing my cooking here during the eighties, during the eighties, which meant, I found even more fascinating. Yeah. You meant to say eighties. So what was your favorite, <laughs> what was your favorite job here? <sighs> um, can I approach that just a, a little bit bigger? Yeah. Do you mind? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm obsessed with history. I mean, I've, you know, I've two degrees uh, in history, one in history, one in art history. It's what drives everything that I do. And I approach, you know, it's what spun me into this phase of my food life when I left restaurants. And I use New York as, as my example. I mean, I studied it in high school. I studied it in college. Um, I understand this city better than I understand any other city in the world. I was born here. I was raised here. But I also made it my intellectual discipline and, and a part of my, my life's work. And, you know, people forget that, you know, in the 1960s, this was a very unremarkable food town. Uh, in, in fact, it was populated like, you know, most uh, big cities on the East Coast, still trapped in the notion – that we developed in the 19th century that it would be best to emulate European capitals and what they did. We still had that chip on the shoulder as Americans that somehow we weren't quite great enough. Even post-World War II, even post-Eisenhower uh, era in the 50s, even as we you know, catapulted ourselves into the 60s and it kind of was a, a series of global experiences and I think beginning with the assassination of Kennedy that made America really look at itself and think of itself in a different way. And I think when we began to look at ourselves in a different way, we started to look at what defines us and what makes our world possible. And the next 10 years, you know, and I consider really 64 to 74 to be the 60s. Sometimes it doesn't true up Mm -hmm, exactly mm -hmm. chronologically. Um, Let's call it 63 to 74, you know, let's end when Nixon resigns, Mm -hmm. right? And the last helicopter pulls out of Vietnam. Um, Those 10 years, it was extremely, extremely upsetting to be living in this country. We're questioning all our values. Things were changing very, very quickly. But at the same time, so much changed in how we saw ourselves. I think more so than any other time since the 1880s, uh, when we finally sort of wriggled out of what happened during the Civil War and and started to make some decisions about what we wanted to be at that point as a newly united nation. Sometimes these things take 25, 30 years to develop. New York City in the 60s was very unremarkable. You know, the first sushi bar didn't open up here until the early 70s. There were a lot of French restaurants. No one cared about who was cooking in them. Everyone cared about who owned it or who was in the front room. Everyone knew the, you know, at that point, you know, the, the great restaurant in New York and the 
late 50s, early 60s was Pavillon, right? And Henri Sewell was the GM and and strode around the room. And, you know, those are the, you know, Capote and the ladies who lunch, you know, were there every day. And slowly but surely, these French restaurants started to talk about, well, who's cooking in the kitchen? We had chef-owned restaurants, you know, Jean-Jacques Rachou at Caravelle and Andre Soltner at Lutece. And people could actually name who the chef was. Except in those days, the chef never left the kitchen. I mean, they didn't, they didn't leave the kitchen to do a magazine interview. They didn't leave the kitchen to do a photo shoot. No one thought to walk Jean-Jacques Rochou two blocks over to Central Park and get a picture of him against the West Side skyline. They had to shoot him in front of the giant floral display every single time in the middle of that mm-hmm. restaurant. We thought of food differently then. We're still trying to emulate what was done overseas. It, it reminds me of a conversation I had with Gaston Acurio once who when he closed – uh, Astrid E. Gaston, and I was down there for the closing month and ate there in the restaurant where he did 20 courses, one from each year that they were in existence. And he he and I were, were out late one night and he said, you know, when I started my career, all I did was uh, French and Italian food as best that I could. And the first year or two in the restaurant, that's all I did until I had my epiphany, which was why don't I use those techniques but use ingredients from Peru. And – you know, over the 20 years, you know, eventually by year 15, he had the balls, his words, to put guinea pig on the menu, something that they eat down there regularly, but to put it in a three-star Michelin restaurant is a whole other ball game. I mean, at some point in a, in a, in a equivalent style restaurant here, people are going to start serving squirrel and other things. It's delicious meat and people will freak out and the, the floodgates will open. But, um, but I digress. This, these these transitions take long, long time. The, to me, the big thing that changed in New York in the seventies was you know Kissinger goes to China. We have this detente that allows Chinese chefs, real Chinese chefs, regional Chinese chefs, to come to New York. And so you have all these incredible high end Chinese restaurants opening up because there's this flood of talent coming in. And Uncle Tai's Hunan Yuan opens up on Third Avenue. And you start to see a New York City that becomes obsessed with ethnic food of all types. And instead of it just being about French food, Italian food starts to have a renaissance. We have a trade uh, negotiation with – I mean I was at the party as a young person invited by people's parents at the Italian embassy when they said, here's a wheel of real Parmesan. Here is something called balsamic vinegar. And the reason these these products flooded into our marketplace was because – they didn't have to pay the kind of taxes that other countries did. We had we developed a trade deal with Italy. So all of a sudden, the French food, Italian food, things start to pick up and people start referring to the outer boroughs. Oh my God, there's Italian food in Manhattan now that's brilliant. There's Chinese food, there's Thai food, there's Mexican food, there's Cuban food at more than just Victor's. And then into the 80s, you start to see the California – notion come in that we're going to cook. What about doing something with American food and all these incredible ingredients that we have here? And that's when things got really exciting. And I and that's when I started cooking in the in the city. I went to Vassar College from 79 to 84. I was on the five-year plan, kicked out a lot, went to Europe a lot and cooked, went to Asia and cooked um, and did my own kind of, you know, culinary training and came back into New York City and started cooking in 83 and 84, but I had been cooking in restaurants part-time starting when I was 15 or 16. And so I saw this transition. And now everyone talks about American place and Larry Forgione, you know, deserves 
all the credit in the world, but in talking to people who are of my generation, I start to mention restaurants like Arizona 206 and Brendan. I don't think there was a hotter restaurant in New York the first two years it was open than Arizona 206. You saw so many different restaurants exploring those ideas. You know, Texarkana was, you know, when it moved it's from its original location, it lost its luster. But, you know, to cook that kind of food in New York City and have it be sort of the restaurant of the moment, Upper West Side Bar Restaurant, but doing really, did a really cool thing, a place called Memphis. This, this whole sort of ex- exploration of what American food is happened during the 80s here in New York City. I was working uh, in none of those restaurants, Uh, (laughs) um, but eating them and amazed by them. I wanted to learn from incredible chefs and cook in incredible places. So I was lucky enough to spend time at Raquel with Thomas Keller and at Arcadia with Ann Rosenzweig and, you know, restaurants like that. And um, uh, Joachim Splikal's failed QV. Uh, I was there, an Italian restaurant called La Colonna. You know, at this point also, I was a horrible alcoholic and heroin addict, but I had immense talent in the kitchen. And so there were restaurants that, um, you know, no restaurants had 200 seats until the 80s. And everyone said, let's do 200 seats. Let's do this brasserie style, grand cafe kind of thing. Well, the problem with 200 seats is that you have to have cooks that can actually put out food fast. And when table turns became something that everyone was concerned about, because like, oh my God, I got all these waiters, I got all these cooks, I better turn my tables. You know, Andre Soltner didn't worry about that at Lutece. They didn't worry about that, you know, in other restaurants. But in the 80s, people started to worry about the business of running the kitchen, became very competitive, more and more restaurants opened up. And so fascinatingly, I had worked in an Italian restaurant in Venice and I'd run the risotto station by the time I had left there. So both at QV and at La Colonna, I was in charge of risotto. So, you know, you're on a line, you only have four burners as the, you know, in my station doing risotto. But I have 200 seats and there's six or seven different risottos on the menu. Shit. Exactly. So no matter how much... Booze I stole, money I stole, hostesses and waitresses I harassed. I mean, you just list, you know, all the horrible things because as as an active drug addict and alcoholic, I was a taker of things and a user of people, purely and simply put. The fact was is that I could I could put out, you know, 180 plates of seven different six different types of risotto in two and a half hours. And you know, so you the restaurant world changed and it you then have that world that Tony so beautifully wrote about in Kitchen Confidential. And that th- those restaurants really would birth this idea of the kitchen pirate. And it was a fascinating time in this city. Holy shit, you just gave us the 50-year history of New York City restaurants without pausing, without referring to any notes. And it was brilliant. And it was, I was like, holy, you're amazing. How, how are you real? That was incredible. That was, I was sitting here really? like wrapped. It was very impressive. That was phenomenal. Was you just I, didn't take a I breath for a I've only left the 80s. <laughs> we haven't even gotten to the like, decade you asked you about. You started at the Civil War, brought us up to Nixon and the end of Vietnam, took us through an incredibly lucid history of like the business and social history of like restaurants in New York City. And we're barely even at the, I mean, this is, this is great. Like this is your show now. We're done. Well, it's an, to me, it's a fascinating thing to watch how it turns because as those restaurants grew is when we started employing a lot of great cooks from other countries in the world and trained them because they had an incredible skill set as well. When you went into Lutece in the 70s, there was no one 
um, they're working unless they were from Switzerland, Paris, you know, a handful of other European countries because Andre Soltner wouldn't – they wouldn't understand the food and he wasn't running a training program. When you went into Arizona 206, you had Polish cooks and Mexican cooks and, you know, it, it, everyone in between Guatemala. I mean, you, you, because skill set was what was highly prized and the economics of it created an underclass of American cooks. And I think Tony, you know, has explicated that brilliantly in a couple of his books, you know, who's who's cooking your food in the French restaurant. Right. You know, Latino cooks, people whose last name is Martinez. And um, – New York has become – I mean I think New York's the greatest restaurant city on the face of the world. I mean I've been to all the other ones a <laughs> lot, all the time, every year and I eat in those cities regularly and nothing beats New York for both its depth and its breadth. Vertically and horizontally, there is nothing like it. I'm kind of obsessed with Queens these days um, and the Bronx uh, and to some extent Brooklyn – uh, and I'm about to dive into Staten Island the next time that I'm here because I mean, it really takes a while to, I mean, I've been to Staten Island a lot. There's great food out there, but it hasn't been explored and I love islands. Islands are amazing microcosms. Traditions don't leave islands as readily and new traditions don't come on. But when you look at it, you know, if Queens was its own city, number one, it would be the third largest city, I think, in America. It's gigantic. And it's represented 100 and diff 111 different ethnicities are represented in populations of over 5,000. Most of those are also encouraging new immigration to come and that's where people are settling. So they're cooking for their friends and their neighbors and their families. So if you want really great food from Ghana or really great food from, you know, Lithuania or really great um, uh, uh Kurdistan dumplings, the, the only place to go is Queens. It's an amazing thing. And we just finished a Bronx show and I got to spend a year knowing with Bizarre Foods that I would always come back to each borough. I've spent a couple of years kind of and, – and I've spent a lot of time in the Bronx and relatives that live there. But to go into – we found a pool hall that is <laughs> – that serves some of the best Dominican food I've ever eaten in my life. Um, it's a little – dicey to on on the look of it to some people but it's just families playing pool playing dominoes and there's one lady with two burners um cooking food kind of in a gray market situation i mean i think a health inspector was there one i mean it's just not it, it's not a real restaurant but there's seven or eight items on the menu that this grandma who tends the bar and you know tosses you know drunk people out when they're you know had too much beer does the cooking and it's just it's just brilliant kind of stuff. And that's the kind of thing that you see in New York more readily than in a lot of other cities. It exists in other places, but not to the depth and breadth that it does in New York. I think in, in New York, because Queens in particular has such a rich and dense immigrant population and these like very beautifully contained sort of contained is the wrong word, but like these, these discrete pockets of people from various places around the world, you wind up, um, getting rid of what is often, I think, an obstacle for people who travel to countries that don't have robust restaurant cultures, mm -hmm. but instead have robust home cooking cultures, mm -hmm. which is home cooking becomes restaurantized Correct. And without becoming sanitized or becoming like dumbed down for white people the way it is Correct. in Manhattan. Lobster but, mac and cheese. Mm -hmm. Right. With truffle oil. Right. But like, I, you know, if, if you were to go to the Dominican Republic and you wanted to have 
that woman cooking food, it would happen in her home. It wouldn't happen in a restaurant. It's a brilliant observation, and it's why certain things are – so many things in those places are done family style, especially in Russian and Burkharan restaurants, a lot of Eastern European places because so many of these foods like plove – a Central Asian dish that eight or nine different countries all claim is their own national dish. I, I happen to think Kazakhstan sort of wins the plove war, but that's that's a debate for a different crowd. <laughs> Let's when not I, get into that whole yeah. plove war. <laughs> um, but you know, it's a it's a rice dish with you know lamb or goat and seasonings, and it's done family style. And you you make it you know like you know, like so many other dishes, you only make it for. 20, 30 people at a it's time. celebration food. But they have found a way in so many of these different restaurants out in Queens uh, and in the and Brooklyn as well, um, especially out in the Brighton Beach end, to have so many great versions of this. And the Burkharan bakeries, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, there's an ethnocentrism that brewed in Manhattan for a long time that despite all the great restaurants and all the great ethnic influences here, over the last 10, 15 years, money and class has pushed a lot of the creativity in many different places out. I mean, the, the great example, and you guys, you know, have done so much uh, articulate and great work around this issue. You know, this is a city where, you know, the the neighborhood that Danny Meyer built, he can't afford to live in anymore. Right. Right. And I mean, that's a that's a fascinating sort of thing, but that's happening all over Manhattan and it's becoming sanitized and it's hard. It doesn't mean that I don't love Cosme. I mean, I think that's one of my favorite restaurants um, in New York and one of my favorite restaurants, new restaurants of two years ago now, technically. Oh, it's yeah. about a year yeah, and a half yeah, old. It's a, I'm approaching its second birthday. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, a, amazing food. And, you know, Enrique Olvera is an incredible chef. Um but that's not the first place I think of when I think of, of Mexican food. And we've had incredible, incredible chefs. Look, I and mean, we'll just stick with Mexico as one example, one totem. You know, look what Alex Stupak has done with his empire, both with the, the restaurants, the book, and trying to sort of universalize the a different taco experience uh, for people. I mean, you know, he's fighting an uphill battle here, as are so many other people in restaurants in lower Manhattan because, you know, that there's there's office building developers coming for their spaces next, right? And the developers who are building these multi-use spaces, this mm -hmm. is something we've been we've been talking about a lot sort of in the background at Eater lately uh, is like the developers and landlords increasingly in Manhattan. And I imagine this is the mm -hmm. case in other places, but here I suspect it is way more cutthroat and way more vicious and has much more of a chilling effect on creativity. Um, oftentimes landlords who have restaurants come in as their tenants will have, will require a stake in the restaurant Correct. and a stake in the restaurants, um, Earnings, not necessarily profits. Well, the and restaurants so, want that too right. because it's too expensive to open a restaurant in Manhattan. But it means that landlords wind up having input into the kind of food yes. that these restaurants serve. Correct. And they want to ensure that the food is safe and attractive and has Correct. mass appeal. And there's a, a chef who I adore who recently told me this story that just destroyed me that he was in negotiations with a landlord for a particular space. Mm -hmm. he, he cooks the food of a particular region that is not general American right. food. And the landlord told him that he flat out could not have the space Correct. that he was interested in unless he put a burger and a Caesar salad on the lunch menu. Correct. And 
so he pulled out. Right. And you lose this restaurant in this location because the developers and the landlords are interested in money. And, and someone else will take that space and put that on the menu and say, you know something, I'll give that and I'll maintain my 90% of my integrity because I want a restaurant that's going to perform well in Manhattan because I feel I need to be in Manhattan. Sure. There's a lot of other smart chefs. The, the, the flip side of that story, I think, is a cooler thing that's going on. And again, you guys have written a lot about it. You and I have talked about it, uh, Helen. The New York's loss and New York's problem has been the nation's gain. And yes. overall, we're in a better place food-wise because there are chefs in New York who are sitting there saying, why am I spending $75,000, $100,000 a month for my fancy pants address I'm essentially making money for my landlord when I could be doing the same food and packed all the time in another city where it's costing me next to nothing. Um, I will share with you without sharing numbers something that I be, – because they're close friends of mine and one of them is a, a business partner. Um, the uh, – you know, Gavin Kaysen made a decision not to open a restaurant in New York right. for, that, so he, for that very reason. He had been – the guy basically running the show at Bulud. Yes. And he's one of the most, when, but the time that he left Cafe Bulud, I feel like he was one of the most respected chefs among chefs in New York. Correct. No, he's a brilliant, brilliant, Phenomenal. brilliant chef. Um, and had proved it both on West Coast and East Coast, you know, done it twice, right? So, you know, and he'd been running, he was at Cafe Bulud for eight years, took over from Andrew Carmelini and uh, a hard act to follow. And he had become Danielle's sort of prodigal son. He was the one who was young enough in the right place. He was coaching Bocuse Door. He, he had different aspirations than Andrew did. And, you know, Danielle and Gavin developed a father-son relationship that continues to this day. They're extremely close that way. And I think both of them thought, you know, Danielle, as he aged out of the business, would still be behind the restaurant, but Gavin could be the one who, you know, took over the whole schmageggy, right? Well, Gavin, you know, with two young kids and New York prices and all the rest of it said, you know something, I I'm going to go back to Minnesota, you know, and I'm going to open a restaurant there. So he's opened a restaurant. It's a huge hit. It, you know, got nominated for best new restaurant in, in America. Spoon uh, and Stable, right? Yeah, Spoon and Stable lost uh, to uh, uh, Drew Nipperant's new restaurant, Batard. Um but the, I mean, it's an incredible restaurant in a great space. So we, last year we started, I'm tangentially involved in the restaurant and we, we came up with an idea last year to have these synergy series dinners where we got chefs, from, you know, famous chefs from around the world to come in every quarter and do a series of dinners, book signings, all the rest of that in the restaurant and make Spoon and Stable sort of the hub in the upper Midwest for where these things happen. You can't get a restaurant at Morea, but you can taste Michael White's food in Minnesota, come to our dinner. And there were actually a couple of New York customers who flew in uh, for the Synergy dinner. That's uh, sweet. They're fans Dedication. of Gavin's and Michael's. Yeah, yeah it was a fun night. Um, but along the way, I was standing there while the two of them shared the numbers on what Gavin pays for rent in Minnesota for Spoon and Stable, a stunning restaurant whose design was nominated for a Beard Award. It's gorgeous uh, space. It's beautiful space. Uh, and uh, what Michael pays... At Marea. Which now, is on Central Park South uh, in like the most power location. Right. That is the – you're not going to pay more for rent anywhere than what Michael mm -hmm. pays at Marea. Um, but Michael, upon learning of the numbers, you know, turned around to me and said that 
I mean, essentially what I pay uh, in a day, he Gavin pays in a month. Yeah. Now that is a true – and anyone could have kind of guessed that, you know, but there are great restaurants opening in Kansas City and Indianapolis and look what Gerard Kraft is doing in St. Louis with his restaurant group and you can go to all of these – I'll call them second cities. You know, they're outside of the top 10 in terms of population number, but they're in the top 30 and they can support restaurants like this. And more importantly, and you 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 talked about the 90s in New York. One of the things that happened in the 90s is that food magazine and food television exploded. So more people were exposed to the idea of good food. So they were more curious and they were better customers. The customer base changed and started to eclipse the restaurant world. And so restaurants had to open faster and differently and perform better to satisfy the need of the consumer. For the first time, you know, probably since the 1890s here in New York City, you know, the golden era of, you know, when Delmonico's open and all of these great, amazing restaurants. So you you have the situation now where nationally you have these amazing restaurants opening up in Pittsburgh. I mean, look at the Eater heat map. Right. And take a look at, I mean, I look at that all the time. And Thank I'll just you. plug in cities and look at it. Well, I, I'm biased. <laughs> I happen to think you guys do an incredible job. And I spend, I'm on the Eater website every day for one thing or another. Um, the You look at the heat map across all of what are those secondary cities. I mean, look at who's winning the awards. Look at what's going on in Houston. I mean, Houston's a big city, but no one ever thought of that as a food town. Are yeah. you kidding me? Look what's going on in Dallas. I mean, look at what's going on in, you know, Bentonville, Arkansas. I mean, these in incredible as I travel around the United States, the level of food. Look what's happened in North Carolina. I mean, with what Ashley Christensen is doing, um, with uh, what Vivian has done, with, you know, Chef and the Farmer. I mean, this is extending all across that. It's an amazing thing. New York's loss has been the nation's gain and New York will recover and there will be a new food movement birthed here over the next 10 years. The that will then salad movement. Influence <laughs> us later on. What's what's kale? Have um, I missed something uh, while so I've been traveling? This interesting dark green leafy vegetable that's very high in vitamin K. Uh, no, but I, it's totally. Do they true. serve it anywhere other than Barbudo? <laughs> How can here's my question for you? <laughs> yeah. How can so many people serve so much shitty kale all over America, and no one says, you know something? I'm just going to copy what Waxman does. Because it's so good. I think a, a lot of people do. But he has, he has a shaved kale salad, is that it? No, it's just a kale Paper salad. Paper thin and rubbed with lemon right. juice and olive oil. You have to treat kale a certain way and mm -hmm. then it's Yeah, no, this is my this is my like favorite when I want to be really pedantic. Mm -hmm. I, I like deliver my kale lecture, which is that we're not supposed to like biologically, we're not Correct. supposed to eat raw kale. Mm -hmm. Like you can and you'll be fine, but if you eat too much of it, we, our, our bodies don't digest it super well. Mm -hmm. So the reason the Jonathan Waxman's super, super thinly shaved, massaged with acidic things kale salad is so wonderful is because it is effectively cooking the kale. It's broken down a little bit and you yeah. have to with certain things. You have to treat it the way you do with it's raw spinach too. It's like the this, I mean, spinach and frisee are the other two greens that like are not as easy to digest if we eat them raw. And that's why they are served with hot dressings. Mm -hmm. Historically, spinach salad, like grown up spinach, not right. baby spinach was served with a hot dressing because it wilted it. Right. And like a salad lyonnaise with a hot bacon dressing wilts the 
greens. And I love like, it when you speak these French. These things <laughs> exist for a reason. Like we, we are part of the trajectory of history. And if you want to have really difficult bowel movements by eating a lot of raw kale, be my guest. Be my guest. I found, but it's a cleanse. That's a cleanse. <laughs> it's saved you, to you, it's a problem. To other people, it's an opportunity. I guess that's true. <laughs> Food secrets abound in New York. And the minute we were talking about the Barbudo kale yeah. thing, mm -hmm. um, I found out the the other day, simply thanks to a truth in labeling uh, practice, that do you know why um, the uh, Russin daughter's whitefish salad is the best whitefish salad in the world, bar none, better than anyone else's, even the great places in New York that do it? Lay it on me. It's not 100% whitefish. Shut Ooh. up. What is it? They put a little bit of baked salmon into it. They cut it. But it needs it. Pure yeah. smoked and salted whitefish is a little too strong and other people's can come on a little strong. Then you have to put more mayonnaise or more other things into it. But the reason theirs is so good is that, you know, I'll make it 80, 20 or 90, right. 10. They have a little bit of baked salmon in there, which sweetens it out and doesn't, it puts fish volume and maintains the texture and the sturdiness of it without putting more salt and smoke in the dish. It's the kind of thing they figure out after a hundred years of doing that, you know? Well, I think they've been doing it for a hundred yeah. years, but they finally had to stick the label. My, my grandmother bought food from Nikki's grandfather down oh, there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know. I have a deep and abiding, like, uh, uh, my it's a DNA thing. Yeah, I mean, you're I'm genetically like, connected to this restaurant. Correct. Yeah. And several because my grandmother used to run around and shop at all these great sort of Jewish places to get food. And so then my other grandmother just, you know, got chicken salad at Schraff's. She wasn't. But she did live across the street from Uncle Tai Sunan Yuan, and that was an important part of my life. So I shouldn't give Grandma Pauline so much shit. Well, on the note of giving shit to your grandmother, mm -hmm. we've reached the point in this conversation that we like to call very creatively the lightning round. I love that. Yeah, no one else calls it the lightning round when they no, do this on their podcast. No, absolutely not. It's only us. <laughs> but in the course of the lightning round, Greg and I are going to ask you a handful of questions and you can answer them however you like. It's really fun. Okay. Is it like a test? It is like a test. We will tell you at the end how, how we feel okay. about you That's based good. on your answers. Okay, so question number one is you have an hour to kill at the airport. What do, what do you do? What, what's your game plan? Email. Email. Just sit there and work, huh? Mm-hmm. I guess you're in airports a lot. I'm perpetually behind. Um, I am constantly trying to catch up on email. Airports, no one bothers me. I'm fine. I would rather – everyone says, oh, my God, it's a 17-hour flight. How do you deal with that? I'm like, that is my happiest place in the world. The phone doesn't ring. I have no responsibilities. I can simply clear shit off my desk, which is a portable environment that I take with me everywhere. So I do my – and I actually, I do my best work um, on email. I wrote a speech that I gave at General Mills to the board of directors there um, on a plane ride on no sleep for two days coming home from Cyprus a week ago. And the Ken Powell, the, the, the CEO came to me and said, that was a, an amazing speech. Where, when did you write it? Where did you write it? And I explained on a plane, he said, that must've been some good ride, <laughs> but that's my, that's, that's where I do my work. Wow. Magical. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're on a road trip by yourself in a convertible driving down a long, beautiful, dusty American road, mm -hmm. you are blasting music and singing along. What is the music you are singing along to? Oh God. Um, uh, either the who or the grateful dead. Any particular album? I have a lot of live bootleg grateful dead stuff on my. Do you really? Song. So what, what era? Uh, 70 to 74. So yeah. To 
that's hardcore. That's like legit. That's, that's I think but that's I, the here, most classic the, era. I would I no, would absolutely. And you know, yeah. that was the era. That was you know, that's where I listened to in high school. I followed the band. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did that. You know, all those super groups. I grew up in. I was in high school during the seventies. So we would go to little clubs like CBGBs and hear undiscovered bands like Blondie or mm-hmm. you know the Ramones or you know I mean, and they were bar bands back then. Or you then on Saturday night you went to Madison Square Garden and one night was Emerson Lake and Palmer and the next night was the Who and then there was Yes and then there was Jethro Tull and there was the Dead. And then there was the Stones, and it was just every weekend there was a super group at Madison Square Garden, and so you—that was that classic rock stuff I got exposed to. You know, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, same thing. Neil Young, same thing. You know, just like that's the music I listen to. I happen to have a ton of new music. I love music. I'm obsessed with it, and I'm on the road a lot, so I'm always listening to it. So it it could be Dandy Warhols or Brian Jonestown Massacre or you know, what, whatever the new Beck album or something. I mean, it's, I'll, I'll, I listen to a lot of new music as well. But so. when it's singing in the car, it's the Grateful Dead or the Who. I respect that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you have to cook a meal for your family. It's a regular weeknight and all the regular stuff that you usually have is in your refrigerator and cupboards. What is that? What is that meal? It's the same thing every time, much to the lament of my wife and my son. I, the first dish I ever learned to cook was my grandmother's roast chicken with pan gravy. And that is my go-to thing all the time for them. And I make what we now call the Zimmern salad, which is a tomato cucumber salad with little shavings of shallot, feta cheese, fresh mint and fresh basil, a sturdy Banyuls vinaigrette with an olive oil that I've smuggled into the country from some woman's backyard in Croatia or Cyprus or Greece that's like some killer olive oil a crusty loaf of bread, the, you know, potatoes and carrots that have caramelized in the fat from the chicken that I've removed and put on a plate. And then I make the gravy in the pan, the chicken roasted in, and that's dinner. And I make it all the time. And everyone's like, oh, roast chicken again. And I remind them, I'm like, there's people that would crawl across a desert of broken glass to eat this meal. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've made it a thousand it times. It's pretty meal. good. Uh, it's pretty good. I'm I, not going to lie. I'm extremely hungry right now. I and got this it was down. difficult for me to listen to. Have a Luna bar. Oh, yeah. I have one right here. Well, okay. That was going to be my next question, actually. We have an array of snacks from the extremely well equipped Vox Media and Eater yep. snack cabinet in front mm-hmm. of you, including Boom Chick Pop, Sun Chips, Cliff yep. Bars, Lemon Luna Bars, Pirate's Booty, and a paper cup full of cashews. Yes. If you could only have one of these snacks for the rest of your life, which one would it be? Not even close, Pirate's Booty. Yeah. All right. I feel like it, it has no peanuts. redeemable value. <laughs> it's mostly air. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in, I, I'm a Lotus eater. I mean, I'd love <laughs> to sit here, you know, and tell, I mean, it's like other chefs who are like, Oh, I shop at the green market Union square all the time. And I'm only eating, you know, it's like bullshit. You love gas station pizza. Admit it. It's delicious. <laughs> admit, admit it. You line sack of shit. You eat <laughs> gas station pizza. I'm the first guy to say, I love gas station pizza. It's freaking great. I have a gas station pizza machine. Bar, Midwest bar pizza Those, in like, my office. It's that little like the, Betty Crocker yes. oven with the slide. Oh my God. And we keep bar tavern, frozen tavern pizzas in my freezer at work and I eat them all the time. And I, Pirate's Booty, my kid eats and I love these things. And it's like air. I mean, it's just, and I'm sure there's a redeemable, there's one gram of fiber in it. So I guess it is good for you. There you go. On, not entirely nothing. <laughs> on that note, Andrew, thank you so much for coming by the Eater Upsell. I love you guys. We love you too. Yeah, thank you for being. Pleasure. Thank you for being all that you've done for the food community. We didn't get to the what's what's the current decade we're in? 
the teen, the teens? teens. I don't know. What are they called? There's got to be a fun name. We don't have for a it. name for it yet. All right. Well, Morbido will come up with. Yeah. One. Uh, but he, he, in in all honesty, without smart people like you carrying the torch up the hill, the voices that need to be heard and the topics that need to be discussed don't get discussed and don't get heard. So anytime somebody just you know, is feeling down, remember that you guys are, are doing amazing things and are really the gold standard at what you do. So don't stop. Well, we're going to have to cut that because it's too nice. Thank no, you so much, true. man. People who, people who don't say so or don't understand the game. Thank you. <laughs> who else is doing that? Well, hopefully everyone soon. Well, well a lot of people, everyone look, soon. There's yeah, a lot of exactly. great, there's a lot of pe- pe- cool people in the digital space. But everyone looks at what you guys are are doing, and you're the gold standard. Shit. Pat yourself yeah. on the back. Buy yourself an extra slice of pizza yeah. for lunch. You deserve it. from the it. gas station. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming by, Andrew. Always a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. The Eater Upsell is recorded in Vox Media's exquisitely beautiful Midtown Manhattan studios. Your hosts are Greg Morvito and me, Helen Rosner. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. Our producers are Patrick Bulger and Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our studio team is Miles Yule and Alex Ulreich. And of course, the most important person involved in the creation of all of this is you. Yes, you. Thank you, beautiful listener, for being who you are.